Good evening, everyone. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here, and I'm pleased to see all of you here on this beautiful, rarely beautiful summer evening. Um, I call your attention to the table in the back uh, as you came in. Uh, we have uh, copies of our news and events calendar and program flyers about upcoming events. Um, a week from tonight, you'll be able to meet and hear Walter Mosley here, and we're going to uh, have it downstairs in Central Hall. Uh, this is his new, his new Easy Rollins Mystery is out, and it's been a long time since Walter's been here in Baltimore, so we hope you'll come out and give him a great Baltimore welcome. Um, it's my pleasure tonight to welcome Leonard Pitts back to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library. Many, many of you are familiar with, um, his, with his writing because of his syndicated column, which appears in the Baltimore Sun, unfortunately only online these days, but it's also in some 200 other newspapers um, around the country. He won the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for commentary for his column, and he's the author of the novel Before I Forget, and the memoir, Becoming Dad. Leonard Pitts's new novel is Freeman, which was a free man, which was published last year by Agate Publishing, and it takes place in the first few, few months following the Civil War, the end of the Civil War, and the assassination of President Lincoln. It's a powerful, compelling novel with characters you won't soon, soon forget, the three main characters are Sam, a former slave, who goes searching for his wife, and Tilda is the wife who treks from Mississippi to Arkansas um, behind her, her owner, and the third character, a main character, is Prudence, a wealthy white woman from Boston who goes to a small town in Mississippi to start a school for the former slaves. The minor characters are also finely drawn, and um, as Howard Frank Mosher wrote in his Washington Post review, and I quote, Freeman is an important addition to the literature of slavery and the Civil War by a knowledgeable, compassionate, and relentlessly truthful writer determined to explore both enslavement and all its malignancy and also what it truly means to be free, end quote. I would add that, in my opinion, this is Leonard Pitt's best book yet. It certainly goes on my list of best books of this year, and I hope that someone in Hollywood reads it and loves it as much as I did. <laughs> now, please give a warm welcome to Leonard Pitts. Thank you, Ms. Cooper, and if, if you have Oprah Winfrey's number or Steven Spielberg's number, I'll... <laughs> I'll be happy to get that from you when we're done here. Uh, thank you all for coming out. I appreciate it. Uh, it's, a, it's a beautiful spring day, and uh, you could have spent it anywhere, and I'm glad you chose to spend part of it with me. Uh, I want to spend a few moments uh, talking about my uh, novel, Freeman. I want to read to you a little bit from it, and then uh, afterward I hope we'll take some, uh, I hope I'll have raised some questions, and we'll do a little Q&A. It usually works best if you provide the Qs and I provide the As, but <laughs> if you want, we can do it the other way around if, that, if that's better for somebody. Um, Freeman, as you heard, is a novel uh, that takes place, it begins uh, the day that the Civil War ends. Um, and as you heard, the three major characters are uh, Sam, who is a uh, former slave. He is, a, he is an anomaly. He is a literate former slave uh, because he was owned by a woman who uh, did not believe in uh, mistreating her people, as she called it, did not believe in separating the families, did not believe in working them inhumanely, and allowed her people to, uh, to learn how to read and to become, to become educated. Uh, and at the end of the war, we find Sam, who is uh, an escaped slave at this point. He's working at a library in Philadelphia. And uh, he is a man who loves books and who takes refuge in his words and in his literacy. So being in a library is sort of the, the, the dream job for him. And when this war ends, he realizes abruptly uh, that he has to give it up because he has to go uh, and find Tilda who is his wife, whom he has not seen uh, in 15 years, since 1850. Uh, and in embarking on this, uh, this search for Tilda, there's a number of things he has to take into consideration, uh, not least the fact that she is um, uh, 
a thousand miles away. The last place that he saw her was in a, in a plantation where they were both owned uh, in Mississippi on the river, which is about a thousand miles uh, from Philadelphia. But the other things he has to take into account is, look, she it's been 15 years. She may not be in the same place. Uh, she may not uh, be alive still. She may not want to see him. She may have an, an, another man, have another relationship. Again, it's been 15 years. But the thing that is most troubling to his heart is the, the idea that she may still be alive. She may still be in the same place he left her. She may not have another man, and she may still reject him because she holds him responsible for the death of their son. They had a child named Luke together, and when Luke was 14, uh, Luke wanted to go with his father and run away to uh, to freedom. Uh, Tilda rejected this idea adamantly. Her argument was we are owned by a woman who treats us humanely. We've got it good for slaves. We're owned by a woman who treats us well and does not believe in, in working us like, like, like animals and who, who, who treats us as if we were, were, were human beings possessed of a soul. And Sam's response is the person who's owned by a humane owner is nevertheless the person who is owned. So he decides that he wants to strike out for freedom. This is the first thing that drives a wedge between him and Tilda. But the second and more important thing is the fact that their 14-year-old son wants to go, and Sam says yes over his wife's objections. And they run, and they're free for two days. And then uh, on the uh, second day, the slave catchers come. Uh, Sam, uh, because he's um, he's a man, he's he's older, he understands how these things work. When four or five men come on you and they've got horses and guns and all you've got is the skin that's covering your bones, you give up. The boy, however, does not understand this and he is um, impulsive and instead of surrendering, he runs and the boy is shot and the boy is killed. So Sam uh, is brought back to the plantation where he is whipped and he is sold and the last, literally the last communication that passed between him and his wife was her screaming and crying and, you know, where's Luke? Where's my son? What's happened to my son? And then Sam is sold away. So this 15 years later at the war, uh, the war being over, he is going back for two reasons. He's going back, first of all, because he never for a minute in all that 15 years stopped loving her. The other reason that he's going back is because there is something unresolved between them. There's something that, you know, that, that's got to be dealt with, has got to be talked over, that's got to be resolved. Uh, I got our son killed. If I had listened to you, our son would still be alive, and we would all be free. And we never, you, there was never a chance for us to cry over that. There was never a chance for you to slap my face. There was never a chance for, for us to, you know, to have any sort of conversation about that because immediately I was sold away. So he's compelled by that in his walking to, um, to uh, Mississippi. The second major character, as you heard, is Tilda. And Tilda is not the woman that Sam remembers. Uh, Tilda, uh, four years ago, uh, this takes place in 1865, of course, four years ago, just before the beginning of the war, Tilda was sold to Marsh Jim. Um, and Marsh Jim is, uh, completely the opposite of the slave, uh, the owner that, uh, that, uh, Sam and, uh, Tilda had. Uh, Marsh Jim is a brutal and, uh, uh, half-crazed uh, man by the time we meet him. Marsh Jim uh, has raped her and beaten her uh, repeatedly. And uh, now at the end of the war, when the word comes that the slaves are free, Marsh Jim cannot process that. Marsh Jim refuses to process that. Marsh Jim's response is, how are they going to take something from me that I paid for fair and legal? It's like if your car said, I'm free now. <laughs> Get home as best you can. I'm free. <laughs> Marsh Jim cannot process this. How can something that I own be free? So rather than, you know, live, uh, you know, under this, under what he calls Yankee domination or, or, or live under the, the heel of the Yankee race, which is the other way they, he puts it, uh, he sets out walking. Uh, and he does not know where he's going, but he just knows that he's got to get away from, from here. So he leaves Mississippi. He, maybe he's going to California. Maybe he's going to Mexico. He doesn't know. But he's marching Tilda, uh, and he's marching her at gunpoint uh, on this sort of doomed and crazy, crazy walk. The thing about Tilda, I don't know how many of you have read the book, uh, a few, yeah. The thing about Tilda that invariably frustrates people, and I'll probably get some questions about this, is why doesn't she run? Because Tilda has every opportunity to be free. Uh, at one point, Mars Jim uh, kills a rabbit, hands her a knife, tells her skin it and cook it, and then goes to sleep. You will never get a better chance if somebody's holding you hostage 
to be free than if you've got a knife and they're asleep. That's pretty much it. But um, Tilda is um, a person, as I said, she's not the person that Sam remembers. She is a person uh, who has been beaten into a state where she is almost uh, more animal than, than human in a way. She, her, she's been reduced to one instinct, which is to survive. So for her, freedom is uh, is this very difficult concept. What does freedom mean? How does she grasp freedom? Uh, how does she find the courage to grasp freedom when this man has beaten and pounded so much of, of the humanity out of her? The final major character is uh, Prudence Cafferty Kent. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I love Prudence. A lot of other people don't. I, the first time I had a um, meeting like this, uh, a lady who had read the book, it was in a, uh, matter of fact, it was in a bookstore here in Baltimore. The lady's words to me were, and I quote, that Prudence was, was such a pain in the ass, I wanted to slap her. <laughs> and maybe some of you feel that same way, I don't know. Uh, but uh, Prudence uh, is a wealthy white uh, war widow from Boston uh, who uh, goes down to um, uh, Mississippi the week after the war ends to fulfill her dying father's wish, or her father's dying wish, I should say. Her father was an abolitionist. Her father had this tradition that every year in June he traveled down to Mississippi. He would find someone who was enslaved, and he would, free, he would buy that person and take them to, uh, to Boston and set them free. Uh, he's a wealthy man, and you know, and, and this is how he expresses his abhorrence of, of slavery. The first person that he set free was Bonnie, uh, who he ended up raising. He got Bonnie when she was a toddler. He ended up raising her, and she and Prudence are the same age, so they, are, they consider each other sisters. And now Prudence uh, is going down to the south and sort of dragging or dragooning uh, Bonnie to, uh, to go with her. And Prudence, you have to understand, is this, uh, Prudence is a, this story takes place in the 19th century, but Prudence is very much a 21st century woman. Prudence is, uh, no, I I take that back, because 21st century women aren't necessarily without survival instincts. Um, (laughs) Those of you who read the book know what I'm talking about. Prudence is impulsive, hard-headed. You know, Prudence is the kind of person who would argue with a brick wall and, and notice she was right. And she can't quite get it through her head that she is going, Bonnie keeps trying to tell her, we're going down to Mississippi (laughs) the week after the Civil War is ended. White folks are not going to be in a particularly good mood. And we don't need to go down there with you calling me your sister. And Oh, by the way, those people that you used to own, I'm building a school for them. You need to soft pedal that, sister. You need to be cool with that. And, you know, Bonnie uh, tries to explain this to her, but Prudence is, as I said, very hard-headed, very impulsive, and, uh, and does not take instruction easily. And uh, so they go down to, uh, to, uh, to uh, Mississippi to start the school, and uh, it does not go uh, the way that, uh, that they had planned. We'll put it like that. I'd like to leave some mystery for you. So I want to read to you. Um, Judy, how long, how long should we go here? Um, okay. Cool. That gives me time to read then. Uh, I want to read to you uh, two selections, if that's okay. Uh, The first, let me get my water Ah, before I go dry here. The first is a section from the uh, fourth chapter of the book. This is uh, when Sam has been on the road for a week, uh, and he has walked from uh, Philadelphia to Washington, D.C. If you remember your Civil War history, the war ends on the night of uh, Sunday, the 9th of uh, April, in 1865, and that following Friday, Abraham Lincoln and his wife decide to attend a play, Uh, and Lincoln is shot at that play at Ford's Theater, and um, he spends the the night uh, in a house across the street, now known as the Peterson House, the Peterson Boarding House, where he dies the following morning at 722. So Sam has gotten into, Sam has walked from Philadelphia and gotten some rides and gotten into into D.C. uh, that Friday night, and he has... uh, been there when the president shot, and he goes through this this overnight vigil, this 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 terrible overnight vigil of all the people waiting out on Tenth Street uh, in D.C. to uh, to to you know get word of the president. And now, when we meet him in this section, he is uh, leaving and embarking back for um, for uh, to continue on his walk. Along the way, he's met Ben, and Ben is also walking, looking for his wife. Ben is not a man who's had the advantages that Sam has had. Sam, as you remember, is very literate and very proud of his words and very, you know, stuck, you know, kind of stuck up, if you want to know the truth. Ben is a man who never had those advantages. Ben is, is illiterate, and Ben has learned how to get by by, you know, smiling. You know, what we say, smiling when you're not, when you're not amused? 
and scratching when you Ben Ben has had to had to live that kind of life. So Ben has suggested that they should walk together since they're going the same direction. Ben's going to Tennessee, Sam's going to um to uh, Mississippi. But, you know, Sam doesn't want to be, you know, seen with with this fellow. So, you know, Sam tells him, "No, that's that's okay. I'll go on by my, my myself." And this section picks up right after that. Um, at length, he came to a bridge spanning the Potomac River. The river was broad and placid here, lapping peacefully at the pilings below. Two Union soldiers watched him approach. What is your business? One challenged when he stood before them. Nothing, said Sam, surprised. I am just walking. What's your name? Sam stiffened. His head came up. My name is Sam, he said. That's all? Just Sam? The soldier he was a boy, really, with shaggy blonde hair, chin whisker still wispy, was spoiling for a fight. Sam considered his responses carefully. He thought of saying that he was Sam Wilson, after the man who had owned him last, but something in him fumed against the thought. He had a self, and it was one he wholly possessed, one that was not tied to a white man who had once considered him his property. Otherwise, what was the purpose of his escape to freedom? What was the purpose of these last four years of slaughter and privation? What was the purpose of the president's murder? He was an individual, not a nameless, interchangeable part of some infernal white man's machine. So he looked the white boy quite deliberately in the eye. Free man, he said. He pronounced the syllables separately, distinctly stopping between them, making them a statement in themselves. My name is Sam Freeman. The boy's eyes widened, then hardened. The next thing Sam knew, he was lying on the wooden planks of the bridge, his hand to his bloodied mouth, his eyes flashing light that was not there. Instinctively, Sam reached behind to push himself back up. He stopped, when he saw the pistol leveled at him, the boy's hand so tight on the trigger that, in some part of his mind, Sam marveled that he was not already dead. Are you sassing me, nigger? From somewhere beyond the pistol that filled his vision, the white boy's voice came to him high and shaky as if he could not suck in enough breath. You asked who I was, sir, said Sam, and was pleased to hear that his voice was quiet and reasonable and did not shake. You asked my cognomen. You asked my appellation. <laughs> Big words the boy soldier would not know. I asked your name, the boy thundered. And Sam was distantly gratified by this unwitting confirmation of ignorance. And I gave it to you, he said. My name is Sam Freeman. He spoke evenly. He did not separate the syllables this time. Jakey, what are you doing? The second soldier, a voice from far away, attempting to soothe his friend. Put the gun down. Did you hear him? Jakey's voice had risen yet higher in indignation. That's what it's going to be like from now on, don't you know? You mark my words, niggers, sassing white men, putting on airs. Sam ventured to speak. I, I was not sassing you, sir. You shut up. The gun hand jerked. Sam flinched instinctively hands leaping up of their own accord. It was a moment before he understood that there had been no shot, that he was still alive. This is what Lincoln has loosed upon us, you know, the one called Jakey was saying. Niggers will think they're as good as white men from now on. That's what comes from all of this, I tell you. Matthew, that's, that's not what I signed up for. That's not what I fought for. Jakey, put the gun down. Come on now. The gun came close. It shook. You can live with them treating you like there's no difference. I'll be damned if I will. Mars? A new voice had entered. Sam risked turning ever so slightly to find the source. His gaze fell upon a dark-skinned Negro who approached cautiously, palms up. It was Ben. He was smiling. His smile was blazing, teeth dazzling white and every one on display. The gun swiveled toward him, returned to Sam. Who are you? What the hell do you want? Impossibly, the smile broadened. You ain't want to shoot old Shine, sir. Shine, that's what they calls me, and I was just trying to explain this boy here ain't meant no harm. Nah, sir. See, family he used to belong to, they's called the Freemans. But they's a white family, you see. Live down there in Orleans. 
He just figured with the fighting over, he'd go down there and see if they got any work for him. Because he missed the old place, you see. Miss his white folks. Plum, sorry he ever run off. That's what he told me. Is that true? The boy soldier demanded of Sam. Cause is true, said Ben. He was next to Sam now, had his hands under Sam's armpits and was pulling him to his feet. He never stopped talking, never stopped smiling at the boy soldier. We was traveling together, in fact, but Sammy here, he walked so fast, he's so impatient to be there, he run off and left me. Ain't that right, Sammy? He smiled up expectantly. It took Sam a moment. Yes, yes, he finally managed. Yes, that, that is right. Shine clapped him on the back hard enough to jar his bones. See, there you go. This weren't nothing more than a little misunderstanding is all. The soldier Jakey regarded them dubiously, and for a moment Sam was sure the lie had not worked. Then the second soldier took over and waved them through. Go on, get out of here. Yes, sir, said Shine promptly. Thank you, sir. And clasping Sam's neck as if he were a troublesome child, he steered him past the guard post. He let his hand fall away a moment later, but the two men did not speak. They walked in silence for long minutes as the bridge fell further behind them. Finally, Sam spoke. I want to thank you for what you did. Ben snorted. <laughs> you mean you couldn't get yourself out of it with your proper English and talking like you got marbles in your mouth? No, I expect you couldn't. Like to got yourself killed back there, Mr. Free Man. <laughs> he drew the syllables out scornfully. How long you been a nigga anyway, Mr. Free Man? I have never been that, said Sam, not bothering to hide his scorn. You know what I mean, insisted Ben. You just woke up black this morning for the first time. Only thing I can figure for how you think you're going to look that white boy in the eye and tell him you's a free man. Sam felt his temper rising. He fought it down. Well, as I said, thank you. They were silent together for a moment. Then Ben glanced up. So, free man, I ask you again. You want to walk along here together for a while? Like I told you, seemed to me like we maybe might need each other. Sam nodded. Yes, he said. Maybe you have a point. And we'll leave it there. Um, thank you. I want to say it's one more thing, and then I'd like to open up for questions, if that's all right with you guys. Um, I'm often asked in, in these sessions where this book came from and, uh, you know, how I got the idea to write it. And, and this book is actually... Uh, almost 30 years, I guess, in gestation. It's been in the back of my head for a, for a long time. The actual writing was a, was a year or, or so, but the the idea has been in my head for a very long time. Uh, 30, almost 30 years ago, I was working on a, uh, on a radio documentary of the history of black America. And in researching that, I came across a book by uh, Leon F. Litwack called Been in the Storm So Long, which is a history of uh, African-American uh, slaves and former slaves during and immediately after the uh, the. Civil War. And one of the stories that he tells, and it's only about three pages that he, that he deals with this, but one of the things that he talks about is that, uh, you know, you have these, these people who've been owned their entire lives. That's the only experience they've ever known. And suddenly somebody says, okay, you're free. What does free mean? And some people decided that free meant, okay, I've been here, now I can, now I can go there. Some people decided free meant, okay, I can, I can walk out without a pass and go see this girl that I've been sweet on at the next plantation or whatever. Uh, some people thought, said free meant, I can change my name. You know, I've been called so-and-so, and I never really liked that, but now I can be such-and-such. But for a lot of people, uh, what free meant was, I can go find that, my, my mom. I can go find my child. I can go find my wife or that person that I loved who was taken from me uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I read this, and I'm reading you know, these stories in Litwack's book, and I'm wondering, does anybody else know about this? Why has no one told this story? This is an astonishing story of the things and the links that we will go to for love. And what makes it more astonishing is the fact that in that era, and I would argue to a degree in this era, one of the stereotypes about African Americans, and particularly African American men, is that we're not capable of love. Lust, yes. Love, that higher, finer emotion, no. Uh, there, you know, you, if you look at the literature uh, during that era, you find a lot of that. And I would submit to you that any time that you are willing to walk from here to the Gulf of Mexico, <laughs> any time you're willing to walk 600 miles on a maybe, she's there. You know, you know something about love. You know something about love. So, you know, I, I, I read this uh, 30 years ago, and the story's been in my, in my head ever since because I, I liked this idea 
of there existing somewhere in the world a book about the lengths to which African-American families and African-American men in particular were willing to go to be reunited with their wives. Common law, because, you know, slave marriages had no force in law. So to be reunited with the women they loved, to be reunited with their children, to be reunited with their moms and dads, this gives the lie to these, uh, to these, you know, stories and, and, and stereotypes about us as a sort of a, a, a an emotionally or morally crippled or morally stunted people incapable of family love. Uh, you know, history gives the lie to that. Uh, and you know, I'm. I, if you re- if you've read this book, you've read. Um, you know, there's uh, a section in the book where there are ads that were placed that 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 are. Um, place from uh, people looking for their lost family members. Those are actual ads. I took those from, from the actual, from Litwack's book, actually. He took it from, from African-American newspapers of the time. Uh, there's another story in the book about a, um, a uh, woman uh, who is uh, looking for her daughter. She's she, my baby. Have you seen my baby? My, 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 she's my infant daughter. Have you seen her? I've been looking for her. And they question her, and it comes to find out that this baby she's looking for was sold from her 20 years ago. And her mind and her heart stopped in that period 20 years ago. So for her, it's always been and will always be a baby. And she can't get through her head that this baby she's looking for is, if she's still alive, is now a woman of 20 who probably has, uh, uh, you know, children of her own. Uh, you know, that's also a, a true story, although I, I fictionalized it for my own purposes. But, uh, you know, there's, there's some amazing and, and really heartwarming stories of the things that African-American newly freed slaves went through to reconstitute their families. And I wanted uh, to, to tell those stories uh, in, a, in a fictional way, but also being true to, to you know, the emotional resonance of what, of what happened then. Uh, there's a there's a, a, a saying, I guess, about the, the difference between, between uh, truth, between history and historical fiction. History is the facts. Fiction is the truth. <laughs> okay. And I had the facts. And what I was trying to do in this book was to come up with some form of the truth. And uh, if nothing else, it, uh, the writing this book and, and the experience of it has helped me to sort of redefine my understanding of, of love and what it means to be in love. My, my daughter, who is 22 now, uh, was came to me a couple of years ago and she's talking about, Oh, I've met so-and-so and we are, we're in love. And it's like, okay, that's cool. Would, would, would you walk a thousand miles for him? <laughs> would he walk a thousand miles for you? Because you know, that, that's the thing that, that, that Sam and Tilda and Ben and all these folks have taught me. If you wouldn't walk a thousand miles for it, it ain't love. It might be something, might be affection, might be fondness. I, I like you. We're cool. <laughs> But, you know, I sat and made a list of the people I'd walk a thousand miles for, and it's a fairly short list. You know? <laughs> it's a fairly short list. So, you know, all, all, that, all that said, you know, th- this book is, you know, I, I hope uh, and I intended it to be sort of my monument to uh, the things that, that uh, you know, the things we did for love. And, uh, uh, and I guess I will leave it there. Are there any questions? Uh, there, again, some of you have read the book, uh, so I, I should preface with this. Not everyone has read it, right? Okay, so for those of you who've read the book, you're probably going to want to ask me about the ending. Yeah, okay, I see you. <laughs> Try to do this obliquely so that we do not, so that we don't ruin it for everybody else. You ask me obliquely, and I'll answer obliquely, and everybody else will be going, huh, what the heck are they talking about? But we'll try to make it understood without ruining, you know, the end for everybody else. You know, the butler did it, y'all. That's, that's what we're trying to hide. You know, try, so we don't ruin the end for everybody else. Yes, ma'am. In, in one of the interviews that I read, mm-hmm. uh, you said that uh, you had taken on uh, pretty much what you had expected, but there were a couple things that changed. Can you share what the name then? You're talking about in terms of the plot of the book? Yeah. yeah what happens is that, you know, you start out with, with a few um, major plot points, but um, things happen. If, if, if your characters are alive, then they're going to do things that you didn't expect them to do. Uh, they're going to behave in ways that you didn't expect them to behave. You know, I'm, I'm experiencing that now. I'm about nine chapters into the next book, and I told this guy to do one thing, but that he won't do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, you know, we got, we, got to, we got to deal with something else. That happened with this book. That happened with those of you who read Before I Forget, uh, the book that came before this. Uh, there's a character who turns up pregnant uh, at another character's door. I didn't know that was going to happen. I didn't even know she had been fooling around. Like, really? You didn't learn enough the first time. This is like an unwed teenage mother. Uh, so the same thing happened in this book. The, um, the revelations about um, 
Prudence's about um, yeah Prudence's family about her father. I was as shocked as anybody else. I didn't know that that was going to happen, you know. But it was like I had this big section of book where where you know there was no Prudence. Well, Prudence got to be doing something. What's happening with Prudence? What if this happens? Oh man, that's going to rock her world. Let's do it. You know that's how that's how that kind of stuff happens. So yeah, I did. I wasn't expecting all the revelations about about Prudence. Um, the thing that happens to Sam at the at the uh, the end, you know, the, the the final plot point or whatever you want to call it, wasn't really something that I had going in. I got it soon after when I started writing, but it wasn't something I had at the very beginning. So there's a lot of that stuff that just sort of comes along as you're um, as you're writing. You're welcome. Yes. I had two questions. And I'm sorry. We have to we have to charge extra for the second question. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I don't know a, a, an, an exact percentage, but it's my you know belief based on the research that I've done that among the names that, that slaves chose very often was Freeman, and also I, I, I suspect nobody's done done a test of this, but I suspect that if you if you um, looked at all the Freemen that are alive in the country now you would find that they were probably disproportionately black. And they also chose patriotic names, which is why there are a lot of black Washingtons and especially Lincolns, you know, because, they, they, you know, these are names that are, that are expressing, you know, their, their jubilation at, at no longer being enslaved. The only other thing, the other thing is, it seems based on how Freeman and his friend or his estranged friend work with each other, mm-hmm. you're looking at kind of two, two versions of anger. Are we talking about uh, Ben? Yeah, Ben and, and Humphrey. Yeah, I think, and they, they never quite come to that. There's, there's this whole tension between Sam and Ben all the time that they're together because Ben, as you saw in that excerpt that I read, believes and sort of smile and, you know, nod and, you know, and get out of there. Yeah, and Sam wants to do this, but they're both, they both, have, they both are, are, are angry. It's just a matter of, okay, what are we going to do with it? How are we going to... Um, you know, how are we going to, to process it and how are we going to, you know, and how's it going to motivate us? Sam's, Sam wants to stand up and, and declare his and, and claim his manhood every opportunity at every chance that, it, that, it's been, that it's been challenged. One of the first things that Sam does in the very first chapter is punch a guy in the nose, if you'll recall, uh, because he feels disrespected by, by this guy. Ben's thing is, no, I've got things that are more important. So I will smile and, and shuffle and, and do whatever. Uh, and I think that, you know, frankly, there's something to be said for both of those, for both, both of those approaches. Uh, depends on, depends on, on, on the situation that you're in. There are time, if, if six guns are on you, you might have to smile when, you ain't, when you're not feeling any, any amusement. You know, that, that's just sort of the story of our lives. Yes? Mr. Pitts, excuse me, I came in a little bit late, but I've been a long-time reader of yeah. Perhaps this was mentioned earlier, but I was always curious... Hmm? You write for the uh, Miami newspaper. But I live here. And you live here. Mm-hmm. And I found it finally very interesting. Finally, Baltimore Sun decided to carry you on a regular basis. Mm-hmm. I was just always curious. Had you ever been contacted, or have you ever considered, you know, being a columnist for the Baltimore Sun rather than those uh, Floridians down there? <laughs> I mean, you're a Baltimorean. Come on. I'm a Bowieite, actually. Um, uh, but no, I've uh, I've never had had that contact, had that conversation with the Sun. I've written a piece or two specifically for them that they asked me for, so I know that I know they know where I am. Uh, but we've never had that conversation. Yeah. Recently, they decided to you know carry you and note that you're from Baltimore. So you yeah. know, before somebody who might pick up the paper might mm. say. Why are they carrying a Miami guy? Right. You know, but they have emphasized that. And I kind of thought, why don't they just go ahead and get him, especially since they really need some decent Baltimore colonists? <laughs> well, you can. I've been reading the paper for 50 years. You, you can ask him that. I, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have a job, you know. <laughs> We're trying to get somebody else to buy him, you know. Yeah, I, I know. That, that might, frankly, be another thing. My paper is actually owned by a company that's owned it for a few years now and is a decent company, so. You know, I don't know. I'm, you know, I don't even know who's going to be owning your papers. That might be a little bit scary. Might be one of the one of the Koch brothers who's who's currently trying to buy the L.A. Times, which is the paper I grew up with. Uh, so that's a whole other story. And my other question was: mm-hmm. Is there ever any time that when you said that they wrote, they asked you to write something specifically for the Maryland area? Mm-hmm. Is there any any time that you've ever seen something where I really think to yourself, I really want to write something for the Marylanders right now? 
No. Um, may, may, oh, I'll tell you what. I, my, one of my sons had a run-in with, um, with PG police. Uh, co- continued the, the, They took him to court because he had an obstructed windshield, and the obstruction was an um, air freshener. Uh, you know, it was, it was one of the, it was, it was a classic driving while black. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I wrote a piece for the uh, Washington Post specifically calling out the PG uh, police department. But other than that, no, what I look for in writing a column is, is, you know, is not a column that is, um, you know, sort of tied to one area. I'm not, I'm not really a metro columnist. I don't write about Florida, even though I, even though I'm employed by the Miami Herald, I write about the country. And if something if something is happening in Baltimore, or something's happening in San Francisco, Houston, Miami, Chicago, wherever that catches my attention, I, I want to have the freedom to write about it. I, I really sort of resist the idea of, of sort of being, you know, tied to writing about a region because then a lot of what you end up writing about is politics. I'd be writing about Baltimore politics, and I don't care about uh, city politics enough, at least to, to write about. I care about who we are as people, who we are as human beings, how we treat each other, how we mistreat each other. Those are sort of the themes that I that I write about. And one other thing, what did you feel about the Cynthia mm-hmm. Boston thing that happened with the uh, beer summit? The I'm sorry, the beer summit. Are we talking about hearing, um, <laughs> uh, I thought that that was sort of evidence of uh, of of President Obama finding. Uh, the limits of what he uh, is allowed to say in terms of matters of race. I think that's the main thing. I thought it was sort of an awkward, um, an awkward as- attempt to escape from a situation uh, that uh, perhaps if he were more savvy, he'd not have put himself, uh, the president would not have put himself into, or frankly would not have let them box him into. It's probably a better way of, better way of putting it. I don't think that this president has ever really found his, um, found his, his, his balance in terms of being able to uh, to talk about race, and I don't envy him because I think it's a difficult it's a difficult job. Yes. Um, I haven't read your book yet, uh-huh. uh, but I've read your column over the years and enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. My question is: uh, You have these slaves who are suddenly free. Mm-hmm. How did they survive? What was the main way of uh, living, so to speak? Well, it depends. Uh, there were some slaves, because you remember the, the, the masters uh, ran on a lot of occasions, and there were some slaves who just ran the plantation. There were occasions, I believe this is uh, the Sea Islands off of uh, the Carolina, uh, South Carolina coast, if I'm not mistaken, where the master got back, and uh, they told him, uh, this doesn't belong to you anymore. You know, and they had to get the uh, the the army to you know to get the slaves back in line. So you had those things happen. Uh, you had uh, a lot of occasions happen where it's now okay. We're gonna I'm gonna barter for my services. This is where you start to get the um, the share crop system uh, to come into effect. But uh, you know the the slaves would would uh, you know sell their services, or I'm gonna sign a contract. You know that it, that it requires me to work for you for a year. There's a certain amount, I believe, especially in the first days after the war, just forging off the land. You know, just, uh, uh, you know, trying to, you know, find something to eat because you got to remember that even if mistress or master wants to uh, to uh, to to feed you or to keep you on the old place, the land is ruined in a, in a lot of cases. Uh, you know, the, the the Union Army came through, particularly when they swept down from Atlanta to Savannah and then turned north. They were they were destroying everything that's in their path. If you had a cow or a pig or whatever, they slaughtered it and carried it with them. They were having a party. Uh, so there was a lot of uh, you know a lot of ruin on the land. So it wasn't just in in, the, in that area of the South. It wasn't just the, the former slaves. It was everybody who was sort of living a hand to mouth existence, trying to survive. Did any slaves or former slaves live in forty acres and a mule? No, the forty acres and a mule was a um, was a uh, um, an, an order that was. And I'm blanking on the name of the of the Union general, but there was a Union general who who said that you know we've turned these people loose. We're about to turn these people loose in a hostile land with nothing to anchor them. So, we'll, we'll, you know, why don't we give them? We got all this confiscated land. Give them forty acres and the, I believe it's the loan of a, of a Union Army mule. And Lincoln said no, and Lincoln rejected that, and that never actually came to pass. Although, as uh, Gil Scott Heron said in the song, there's some people who are still waiting. <laughs> That's all another story. Yes. Uh, as you know, um, next month. It will be the celebration of the 150th year of Gettysburg. Yeah. And there are out celebrations. And I stumbled upon Antietam anniversary last September, and I've been to the one in Fredericksburg, Virginia. You say you stumbled upon Antietam? Yeah. The I, battlefield. I, yeah, I yeah. went there on the day of their anniversaries. I was coming back to mm.
Santino, mm-hmm. I'm realizing. Um, and in two reenactments I've been to, there were very few, uh, I would use the term, minorities there. Mm-hmm. What roles do you feel these reenactments have? I found it very interesting to talk to the reenactors themselves who are from all over the country. Mm-hmm. But what roles do they play and how do they impact the African American community, if at all? I don't know if there's a whole lot of impact at all. I've read where they, you know, uh, you know, obviously the role of black soldiers is underrepresented, but they say that part of the reason for that is there are no, you know, very few black folks tend to have a lot of interest in, in, you know, in participating in this. So, you know, if you don't have black folk, then you can't have representation of what, uh, what black soldiers did during, uh, during that war. I went to my first reenactment, uh, about a, about two years ago, I guess it was, um, I don't know if I'd finished the book or, or, or was still working on it, but it was fascinating to me just to get it, just to, to sort of see and sort of feel and smell and touch, you know, some small sense of what it must have been like to be on, to be on those, uh, those battlefields. It was very interesting to me. Yes? You talk about the uh, formal communication measures. I'm sorry, the... Informal communication measures. So, I mean, what happens, how do you, like, uh, as, or I don't know if your research is doing the book uncovered, how did they find out clues? You know, because a lot of the slaves weren't literate at that time. So if you're making this out in the journey, you have to kind of get information where you can. Mm-hmm. Like, how exactly was the what, Was there a system there, or was it just kind of well for sam obviously it's not a problem because he's he's a he's a literate guy so he can you know he can navigate his way down to uh to to uh, mississippi for other for the others i would uh you know i would assume based on what i've seen it that they they navigated themselves by talking you know and plus you know sam's journey is a little bit epic he, he's he's a thousand miles the, the longest journey of a actual slave that i've been able to document is a guy who walked when he was met, he was he was walking 600 miles and probably had another one or two to go. But you know, you're talking about people who, you know, in a lot of cases are moving from or going from the place that they have been moved to, and trying to find family on the on the place that they've been moved from. So they know that route. You know, I was taken from here, you know, t- five years ago, and I was moved down here, and I haven't seen my family since then. So when you know, in 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 re- retracing the route, they they kind of know it, and then I'm sure that there are people that they stopped and 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 just simply asked uh, asked questions of. Yes. Yeah. Well, plus you know, basic basic navigation, uh, you know, is if you're if you're um, if you've got the sun on your right, you know, in the morning, then you're headed then you're heading north. You know, I mean, there's there's also some basic navigation skills going on there as well. I think, uh, you know, they they knew basic, you know, generally where they're going. And then you ask, you got you got to remember also that a lot of the, um, the, you know, there, there were trails. It wasn't like you're all you're just hacking your way through a forest. There are trails. Um, uh, as a matter of fact, a lot of the the highways that we have, uh, particularly the older highways, not the interstates, are based on those old trails. Uh, like uh, U.S. One is, um, is a great example. Was 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 a trail. When I did the um, when I did the research, one of the things that I did was go through the uh, to the Library of Congress and find the uh, map of the old walking trails, which is which is really fascinating. You know, to find out how people if somebody's going to going to traverse that distance, where how do they go? Where do they walk? But uh, you know, they they had actual trails and had names for the trails, much as you would have streets and names for the streets now. So it wasn't all just sort of you know hacking through wilderness. Yes. Now going back to the uh, question about the, uh, how many blacks were in the army, mm-hmm. I thought that Lincoln didn't want uh, participation there because he didn't want to anger too many uh, of the other states that were not seceding yet. He didn't have them in there until like, after Antietam, wasn't it? No. Uh, it was, eight, Antietam was what, 1862? Yeah, no, you're right. Uh, um, getting my years mixed up. Uh, Lincoln did not want uh, to arm uh, the, the, the slaves or the former slaves. One of the things he said was that uh, if I should give uh, give rifles to them, I'm afraid that very shortly they'd end up in the hands of the rebels. You know, there was all this concern about could could black men fight? Would black men fight? Uh, and so, yeah, you're right. It took um, it took a while. Uh, it took until I guess uh, after, as you say, Antietam, probably 1863, uh, before they began to uh, to recruit black troops. And then, of course, they wouldn't pay them uh, what they paid the uh, the white troops. I think a white soldier earned fourteen dollars a month, and a black one earned eight eight dollars or ten or something like that a month. Uh, so even even at that, you know, they had to they had to have some sort of um, some form of uh, you know distinction between them. But uh, 
you know, Lincoln, um, you know, Lincoln had a, Lincoln, the, the fascinating thing about Lincoln with regard to race and with regard a lot of, to a lot of other stuff is how he grew and changed in those years. Uh, and, you know, that, that applies to, 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 to the former slaves. That applies to a lot of the other stuff that he touched. Yes? Um, I know you, you mentioned it was about love. I think it was I'm sorry? It's about love. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I did not want to leave it without hope. I wanted it to be realistic, and, and realism means it's, it's kind of brutal. But I did not want it to be without hope because I don't think that I don't think we've ever been without hope. But by the same token, particularly talking about you know the, the stuff that happened in Buford, and you, you remember uh, the, the father Charles Wheaton and some of his attitudes. One of the things that I wanted to sort of uh, um, talk you know talk obliquely about I couldn't talk about you know directly, but sort of talk obliquely about was these are the attitudes that you find in the South. Uh, that necessitated the civil uh, rights movement a hundred years later. That's what's fascinating to me. The, the the little speeches that Charles Wheaton gives about his his rights and his you know his entitlements or whatever, those same speeches could have been given by a Southern governor in 1955, 56, 57. The only difference is okay, we've got telephones and and, and automobiles now and, and movies and things, but the 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 emotional tenor of the of, of these people and and the way that they saw themselves and the way that they saw black people in relation to themselves had not changed at all and that you know that to me is just is just amazing how it's like it's like time stopped in some ways in the south after 18 after 1865 their attitudes the whole they 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 decided something and they did not really question that or move from that until after the civil rights movement sort of forced them to um, um, I'm sorry, I'm back here. Yes. I wanted to ask a quick question. We talked, mm-hmm. we learned a lot about reconstruction and how people viewed it. Mm-hmm. How did X-Men view reconstruction, especially? Because to me, the most dangerous time for African Americans was after reconstruction up until probably the 1920s. That was a very dangerous time. But what were the freedmen, the new free people, or African Americans' general view of reconstruction? You know, I don't know. I can give you sort of the historical overview of, of what was thought, but I don't have a whole lot of anecdotes about what the slaves themselves thought. I have read a lot of the slave narratives, uh, but, you know, those complaints that you, that you hear from them are sort of tinged by the fact that these are very old people uh, now who are, um, who are, you know, infirm and poor and, and, and living their last days in the, uh, in the, in the Great Depression. So it's kind of you know you you read that and you have to take the the, the context into account because there's a lot of wishing for the uh, for the good old days of slavery, which which for us you read that and you're going what okay, but you realize where they're coming from and you also realize that you're talking about a 90 year old uh, you know black woman or black man and a young white person comes to the front door and says tell me about what you know what was going on. And if you've had a lifetime habit of, okay, when white folks ask you a question, you know, you kind of dissemble and you kind of smile. You know, so a lot, I, I tend to take a lot of, of the, the slave narratives with a certain, you know, with, with, with a slight grain of salt because you never quite know where, they, you know, where they're coming from. Obviously, the, 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 the view of Reconstruction that we get sort of from looking at it in, in, in hindsight, a friend of mine says it was the first time in America that democracy had ever actually been tried. Um, and, um, you know, it, it was the last for a very long time. Uh, you know, it's, um, it's sort of the flowering of, um, you know, the, the flowering of, of, of African-American, you know, aspiration and hope and this idea that, okay, maybe, you know, we, we will be able to achieve some of what this, this country putatively promises to us. 
really being crushed back to earth. Some people, some historians that I've spoken with see parallels between that period and the period that we're in now, which is post uh, civil rights movement, when there's such an, an, an angry backlash from a lot of people to some of the gains of the civil rights of the civil rights years. It's amazing to me that in 2013 we're talking about, uh, uh, you know, gutting the uh, the uh, civil uh, the uh, the Voting Rights Act, and, and last year Rand Paul was you know requiring people to defend the um, the uh, Civil Rights Act. That's amazing to me. That's astonishing to me. So, you know, there may be some validity to what they're saying. I don't know. Uh, yes. Yeah, I was thinking about what you said earlier, mm-hmm. too, about the movement mm-hmm. uh, at the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. Um, I often thought that that was, I was a high school history teacher, and we all thought that that was one of the most underrepresented aspects of Reconstruction compared with all the other movements, say the movement of... Uh, Delta, Mississippi Valley, mm-hmm. Blacks towards Chicago, and, and the other movements north to the west. But the fact that basically at that time period, 1866-67, people were just looking for their relatives. People started walking. Just, just start walking and start yeah. going around, and they didn't know exactly where they were or what have you, but they just started gluing. And yeah. then the southern whites started clamping down in 66 and 67, saying, Oh, we can't have all this you know, That's when you get laws that criminalize. Basically, if you're if you're black and you're standing around and you're not working, <laughs> you have become a criminal. Uh, yeah, that's when you get those laws. One of my favorite stories out of that era is of a. Um, it's in the it's in the slave narratives. There's this former slave who um, got up one day, just decided that day, I'm going to walk to Kansas. No particular reason. Just had heard all, so much about Kansas. I think I'll go see Kansas. Walked to Kansas. Looked around. Walked back. You know, and that that's. <laughs> That's sort of the expression of, okay, now I'm free. I can, you know, okay, I'm free. I, what am I going to do? I'm going to walk to Kansas. Why not? Okay. Yes, ma'am. Um, two questions. Um, as a journalist, mm-hmm. what, what are the challenges involved in going from journalism to fiction? Mm-hmm. And based on the questions so far this evening, why didn't you, why, why did you make this a work of fiction? Why not write something similar to the Isabel Wilkinson um, Great Migration well, in terms of challenges, uh, the, 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 the main challenges are more pragmatic. I, I think uh, the challenges are, you know, finding the time to do this when you have a full-time job or two, uh, because sometimes I'm also teaching. Uh, so there's a challenge in just sort of carving out the time to, uh, to, to, to write the book. But other than that, you know, it's not really a challenge. Writing the book is, uh, is, is when I go to play. You know, writing, and I don't want you to, to think that I don't love, you know, doing my column, but, you know, writing the column is eating the meal. Writing the book is having a dessert, you know, af- after the meal. You know, the book is, okay, now it's my time. I get to play. Uh, and your other question, why did I do this as, as fiction? Um, because, again, I, wanted, I didn't want to talk about the facts. I want to talk about the truth. I wanted to be able to deal with the emotional, you know, the emotional truth of, 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 that I see in this, which is, again, this amazing story, of, of untold story of all of these people, you know, crossing the South, you know, looking for, for mama and daddy and looking for, for, for sweetheart. It, you know, it just is, it's amazing and kind of heartbreaking to me that that story is not, is not widely known. The American view of African-American history, uh, to the extent that anybody knows anything about it, goes something like this. There was a civil war, there was slavery, there was a civil war, and it was really bad. Then Lincoln freed the slaves, and then black folk didn't, they kind of disappeared, and then they reappeared in 1955 when Rosa Parks said, no, thank you. I think I'm going to keep my seat. You know, go ahead and call the police. But in all those years in between, it's like black folks don't even exist for, his, for, 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 for historical purposes. And yet there's all of this. They talk about two people, Booker T. Washington and George Washington Carver. That's all I ever heard about the whole time. But there's all this rich stuff going on. You got the Harlem Renaissance. You got the, the the Lynch Law. You got you know all of this stuff going. The building of black institutions. You know you got all this stuff going on that is not really that is not really discussed. So I really wanted to to be able to tell this story and talk about some of you know what the the, the, the human and the emotional dimension. I want to talk about what this says to me about who we were and who we who we are. Do you want yes. I'm actually not going to read the second section because we'll be, unless you want, I mean, unless there's a demand, I, I'm trying to compact for time. Uh, there's a hand up, yes. It's hard to imagine that there would be, but do you know how much documentation there is about people who were 
managed to find their loved ones? There is very little. Uh, you're dealing with, obviously, the fact that you're, you're talking about illiterate people. So they did not leave a lot of written record. Much, mo most of what we know about them is through the testimony of people who saw them. Like the guy that I told you uh, had walked 600 miles and had another couple hundred to go. That was He was seen by a white journalist the summer or the fall immediately after the war. There's a guy named John Dennett or Dennett, I forget exactly how to pronounce his name, who was working on, uh, who was on assignment for a magazine, wrote a series of articles just basically traveling through the South, and he encountered this guy. So that's where we get that story. There's a story of a, of a, a union officer in New Orleans who wrote his wife talking about the, uh, the families that had been reunited, and uh, I wish you could see these people as they slept, stepped from slavery into freedom. Husbands are taking wives or finding wives, and oh, what a, what, a, what a beautiful sight. You know, that's where we get that from. The lady that I told you about who, um, who f was searching for her daughter, her baby, and couldn't comprehend that her baby was no longer a baby, that come from a white missionary in Virginia. So, you know, we sort of have, you know, we have these tantalizing glimpses but not a real direct look because these were not people who left a record. Even if you look at the uh, the slave narratives, you have to remember that those are narratives of people who were in their 70s, 80s, 90s in the 1930s. So these are people who were children at the end of the Civil War. So you're getting a child's eye view of slavery. But the people who were full-grown adults, you know, that's a that's a lot trickier to find. Uh, yes? At what point did missionaries from mm. Boston... Mm. There's a couple of mission. I think we may be talking about the same people. There's a couple of missionaries uh, who wrote a book uh, about going down there, and I think this was uh, within a year or two after the war in uh, South Carolina, if I recall correctly. Because I read a good part of their book in preparation for writing mine. Uh, but you know, they they, tra they started traveling down there pretty quickly after. As a matter of fact, the Freedmen's Bureau was set up before the end of the war if I'm not mistaken, because you've got to remember that, you know, the war ended officially in 1865, but you had this whole section of the Mississippi uh, River, uh, you know, towns along there had been, they'd been taken back by 1863. So it's not like, it's not like it was all enemy territory at that point. Was it safe for the missionaries? Uh, I don't think anything was safe, <laughs> you know, in, in the South right after that, that period. Uh, there's a book that I read called... Uh, the Bloody Shirt, um, and I'm trying to think of the name of the other book, but it, it details, you know, South, South Carolina and Mississippi in particular, it seems, were, were lawless right after the, uh, right after the, uh, the end of the war. They just, they just went crazy because, again, there's this refusal. I'm not going to give up my God-given right. I am white by God, and there are certain things that I'm not going to give up. And uh, so there's a certain lawlessness that you find going on in those places immediately after the war. Yeah, so they were resentful too. Yes, sir. Um, I know you said that you had the idea for about 30 years to mm -hmm. put together, but exactly how long did it take for the research aspect? Um, the research probably isn't what you're thinking. The, the, the research, you know, was um, things like finding out, uh, you know, how long it takes to build a chimney in 18, to rebuild a chimney in 1865. Those of you who've read the book will remember there's a scene where Sam and Ben rebuild this woman's uh, chimney. Uh, and how do you cut the grass? And, you know, how do you, uh, you know, how does a disabled man handle a horse? Things of this nature. Uh, and that was a matter, that, that took probably about a year, year and a half of calling around. There were some things that I, that I didn't know I was going to need to know until I was actually into the writing of the book. So I'd have to stop and call you know, I called a, 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 a chimney repair place uh, in Laurel and said, okay, <laughs> here's my situation. The chimney's broke. How, how do you fix this chimney? You know, and this is happening in 1865, so what tools would have been available to me? And, you know, this guy was very nice and, and sort of walks me through it because I have them finishing it in a, in a day, and I didn't know if that was realistic. Uh, so, you know, you get that kind of stuff. I called the uh, Mississippi uh, Department of Agriculture uh, to ask, it, well, what's the quality of the, of the soil? in uh, northeast Mississippi because my characters are traveling through there on the way to the river. So what, what's the soil look like? These are the things you find yourself doing. I took a day and drove up to uh, Pennsylvania where there's a railroad museum to see some of the vintage trains. Uh, so, you know, you, you end up doing all kinds of stuff. And, again, you try to, you try to anticipate everything that you're going to need before you start writing, but invariably there comes a moment when you're in the middle of writing and it's like, okay, i got to stop and go find this. I, spent, I had the longest time trying to figure out, you know, because my characters go to the store um, – Tilda and, um, and, bon and not Tilda, I'm sorry, Prudence and Bonnie go to the store looking for rice. 
it's like, okay, what did that look like in 1865? I mean, rice now is a plastic bag that says Mahatma on the side. <laughs> but that's not what it looked like then. So I've got to go figure out, you know, what did that look like back then? You know, so that was the kind of stuff that I wound up doing. Yes? Oh, I have a question regarding the research. You explained that uh, they were on the train and they Mm-hmm. This lady comes up and her name is Dolly. Mm-hmm. She's going to maybe St. Louis. I'm not going to St. Louis, yeah. Because of the meatpacking industry. Mm-hmm. Now, what you explain to me, the meatpacking industry in 1865, I mean, are they slaughtering, actually, so how are they maintaining or keeping the meat from spoiling? And where are they delivering? They use salt to keep meat from, from, so from spoiling. They use salt to keep meat from spoiling. The mid-1860s is precisely when they start canning foods. Uh, this is one of the things I had to research at the Library of Congress. They had just they had just begun canning foods in in eighteen in in the middle eighteen eighteen sixties. Matter of fact, there's a scene in the book where Bonnie uh, goes into the store and she says she does not she does not trust food she can't see. You know, <laughs> you're asking me to trust that there's some you know whatever is in this is in this metal can. I'm not real crazy about that. You know, so that that's what you know. That is you know, I, and it's funny you should ask because I had a in writing this book and in writing a, uh, other books, I've had that that issue. Okay, how was the meat kept? They dried it, they salted it, and they uh, they also used to have because um, uh, the, the other question I wondered was how do they have ice in the summer? Yeah, they they you have a, you dig a pit, and you put some straw, and you, you you and you take the river ice and you put it in there. I guess I just I just wanted to know enough to be able to say he's going to work. See, here's the thing. Now here's the thing. You, no, no. You know how you, you look at you look at the TV show, and you and you enjoying the TV show, but you know that if you look just this up far up, you're gonna see the boom mic, okay? And you're gonna see all the stuff that's gonna remind you, okay, this is not happening. This is not real. They give you they give you enough of the illusion so that you can lose yourself in it. So anything anything I didn't need to know. <laughs> I didn't go look up. I just okay. Is there meat packing in St. Louis in eighteen? Cool. I don't need to know anything else. I'm just because you. She is a. She's a. She's not even a B character. She's a D character. I'm sending her. Sending her and her husband to to St. Louis to do meat packing. Does that exist? Okay. Cool. I don't need to know anything else. So that's kind of where I was. I'm sorry to dis to disappoint you. Refrigerated railroad cars started yeah. in the early 1870s. Yeah. That's also the, that era is also the beginning of the uh, the uh, advertise the consumer yeah. culture, uh, which which I have done some research on. There was a hand. Yes, sir. Uh, the movie Lincoln seemed to <laughs> suggest that uh, the Emancipation Proclamation was questionable in terms of its constitutionality, mm -hmm. and uh, after the these amendments were passed, the Thirteenth, Fourteenth, and Fifteenth Amendments. Uh, soon afterwards, I, I guess, the Civil War ended. And so the question is, what was the relative mobility of, of those who had been slaves uh, after the Emancipation Proclamation and after the Civil War and these amendments were made? Well, the first thing I'll say is that uh, I, I had not seen that argument uh, until I saw the movie, and I found it really fascinating. I've seen the movie probably four times now, but that was that was really fascinating. The idea that okay, there's some legal shakiness to the to the Emancipation Proclamation, and when he explained it, it was you know it was like really uh, profound. In terms of mobility, you have to remember um, the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free anybody; it just put freedom on the table, which which was no small feat, but it didn't actually free anybody. Uh, so I don't know, you know, essentially, uh, I believe the historian Barbara Field says the Emancipation Proclamation says you can be free if, you, if you're bold enough to take it. <laughs> you know, if you're, going, if, you, if you're bold enough to run for it, once you get here, <laughs> you know, then you can be free. So I don't think it added anything to anybody's mobility. What, what, what made the slaves mobile was the, uh, the end of the Civil War, period. Yes, ma'am. Is you. The book had lots of surprises for me. Mm -hmm. Uh, no, the end was not, I, I knew the end was coming. I didn't know it at the very, when I started writing, but shortly after I started writing, I knew the end was coming. And the reason that I did, if you read the book, I'm sorry, we're going to be over everybody who hadn't read the book. I'm sorry, we're going to be over your head. If you read, if you read the book, the last line is a mirror image of 
Okay. And when I decided that I wanted to do that, I thought, oh, wow, that, that's a great way to do it. But when I decided, okay, for that to happen, then this has got to happen. And, oh, boy, people are going to be mad at me, but, but, that would, but you're a rarity. But that would really be nice. That would really be a nice bookend. So that's why I did that. Was that oblique enough for those? Of, okay, cool. <laughs> yes. Yes, um, I um, thoroughly enjoyed the talk and the book. Thank you. Um, I'm going to a book club in the Woodlawn uh, Senior Center, and we're having, um, the, we'll be discussing your book uh, on Friday. Mm-hmm. I mean, not Friday, but uh, Wednesday. Wednesday mm-hmm. at Loafers for lunch. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'd like to invite you to join us. Uh, Wednesday of when? Uh, next week, the uh, the 12th. I will be finishing. I thank you. I wish you had invited me sooner. I'll be finishing a column and then and then flying to um, uh, uh, Van to where am I? We leaving from Alaska. We're doing Alaska cruise. My wife and I. Um, yeah. So I'll be I'll be eating a lot of salmon about that time. <laughs> but thank you, because I, I I do a lot of book clubs. I wish I could have been able to do that. Oh. Yeah. I was going to say that mm-hmm. um, I'm glad there are some book club members here. And for those of you who are in book clubs, um, this is a great book discussion book for your book club. So um, I highly recommend it for that purpose. And I'm going to um, just close it out now. And we have books for sale here, and I'm selling them for $10. Wow. I need to buy a couple. <laughs> That's less than you get it on Amazon, and so I hope that you'll all come and buy one. And um, Leonard, if you'll just sit back up here by the fireplace, and will do. <laughs> Thank you. To ask your questions, and um, and he will be signing your book. So. Thank you.